The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. October 2020, a wild roller coaster of a year is not yet out of plot twists. President and Mrs. Trump have tested positive for COVID-19. I hope it goes better for him than it did for my old chum Boris Johnson, because Boris's brush with death has psychologically transformed him and his ministry. The vice president... And Mrs. Pence have tested negative. Rona McDaniel, the RNC chair, has tested positive, as has Utah Senator Mike Lee. So a month before the election, the president will be in uh, not quarantine. Uh, the, um, the administration doesn't actually use that word, but what the United States government instead calls self-isolation for at least 10 days. Uh, he has slight symptoms. Uh, but either way, he's just lost a third to a half of his remaining campaign time out on the trail at a time when, according to the polls, he's six or seven points behind for whatever that's worth. Will the second debate go ahead on October the 15th, which is fewer than 14 days away? Well, if Joe Biden's handlers were looking for a reason to call the whole thing off, and they were, they've now got it. Will it put the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation on hold, perhaps fatally? If I had to weigh the politics of this in its crudest terms, I would say um, it will work, at least in the media, if not for Biden, at least somewhat against Trump, because he is perceived as having been cavalier about the covid uh, he's a COVID cavalier, or perceived to be, and that's what the press will play up after they've done the formulaic uh, thoughts with the first family uh, stuff, and they've got that out of the way. Uh, there were those on social media who are already mocking this diagnosis. Tweeter Jamie tweets satirically, He's being held hostage by the deep state. COVID isn't real. I'm fleeing the country. On the other hand, the Chinese media, the most powerful media on the planet, because they're backed by the Chinese Politburo, who are the most powerful people on the planet, the Chinese media are already gloating. President Trump and the First Lady have paid the price for his gamble to play down the COVID-19, says Hu Jijin, the editor-in-chief of Global Times, a newspaper controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, who are the guys who gave this thing to the world. There was not a single question about China at the first presidential debate. The only guy to mention China was Trump. Not a single question about China at that ludicrous debate. And that suits Joe Biden just fine. Stephen Miles is the health minister and deputy premier of the Australian state of Queensland, and he couldn't resist responding to the president's tweet announcing that he'd contracted the COVID by suggesting, quote, have you considered intravenous disinfectant? Ha, ha, ha. Maybe he'll die, Stephen, and he can have a real laugh. Well, Mr. Miles is merely a modestly prominent Antipodean politician, up for re-election on October 31st, by the way. Uh, but a lot of politicians and celebrities closer to home will find similar sentiments hard to resist 
as this isolation goes on. Oh, and how long before Nancy Pelosi, uh, who's already subtly hinted uh, that she's going to be uh, running the country as Madam President starting around December. How long before Nancy Pelosi starts not so subtly dropping the 25th Amendment into her breast press briefings? Did I say breast briefings there? <laughs> I got all distracted now. Uh, anyway, as Steinclubber Walt Trimmer puts it, in our comment section, if he and Melania pull through, stand by for charges that he doesn't really have Chicom 19 and it's all a trick. On the other hand, if Trump goes to the hospital and is put on oxygen like Boris, then Western civilization is over. High stakes. 40 years ago today, October 2nd, 1980, by a vote of 376 to 30, Michael Myers became the first congressman to be expelled from the House of Representatives since the start of the Civil War in 1861. Mr. Myers represented the first district of Pennsylvania. That's... Uh, Golly, Philadelphia, and was caught on tape accepting a bribe of $50,000 from undercover FBI agents, as he famously told the agents in that video, money talks in this business and bull bleep walks. If you're wondering what party Mr. Myers belonged to, well, if you scroll down to paragraph 137 of the news stories, you discover, surprise, surprise, he's a Democrat. That would have been in paragraph one, had he belonged to a certain other political party. But here's the question. Michael Myers was famous when he got kicked out four decades ago. Uh, but what's he doing these days? Well, from just a few weeks ago. Here at noon today, we're learning about a hefty indictment against a former congressman from Pennsylvania, Ozzie Myers. He made headlines back in the 1970s when he was charged with illegal activity as he was still in office. Sarah, these new charges could have been spending the rest of his life in prison. That's right, Brian. Disgraced former United States Congressman Michael Ozzie Myers is facing new federal charges. Myers, who represented Pennsylvania in the 1970s and was imprisoned for bribery, was indicted on eight counts related to election fraud. He says the 77-year-old Myers accepted money, then paid others to add votes to favor Democrats in the 2014, 2015, and 2016 primary elections. Elections do not and will never belong to corrupt election officials who attempt to buy elections. Votes are not things to be purchased, and democracy is not for sale. Now, U.S. Attorney McSwain says one of the people Myers bribed was Dominic DeMuro, a former judge of elections in South Philadelphia. DeMuro has already pled guilty to his involvement. Now, if convicted, Myers could be sent back to prison for up to 90 years and ordered to pay $2 million in fines. Again, Brian, he is 77 years old. Back to you. Extraordinary. Just to be clear here, this quote-unquote judge is the election judge for Philadelphia, and he's corrupt. He's been convicted, and he's facing 15 years in the slammer, supposedly, although he won't get that much because he's a Democrat and there's no equality before the law in the United States. So we have a president who's been taken out of the game at a time when Democrat election corruption in Philadelphia and other critical precincts is already well advanced. 
Uh, speaking of which, I feel I owe an apology to Minnesota Congresswoman Ilan Omar. For years, I've warned of the dangers of an unassimilated Muslim community importing its cultural norms. Ms. Omar, for example, uh, married her own brother, which we used to think of as kind of weird until Amy Coney Barrett came along and we decided the really weird thing was belonging to this creepy sect called... Um, What's the name of this weird fringe group this judge belongs to? Oh, the Catholics. The Catholics. Whoa, freaky. Anyway, Ilan Omar married her brother and committed immigration fraud, but no one's called her on, her on it and no one's going to call her on it. And I take back any complaints of mine about her lack of assimilation because you can't get more assimilated than running a Joseph P. Kennedy-sized vote-harvesting racket in the Somali precincts of Minneapolis as uh, James O'Keefe has just uncovered. Uh, chances of any mainstream media organization going near that story, 0%. If I'd done half of what Ilan Omar had done since landing on these shores, I'd have been deport deported years ago. But one of the most predictable consequences of identity politics, or tribalism, as they say in Ms. Omar's native Africa, is that the concept of equality before the law, a very rare blessing deriving from a very particular tr legal tradition, goes right out of the window. The vote harvesting is already underway and very advanced, and now the president is in isolation for at least 10 days. It always pays to look ahead. Here's Frank Filiuzzi. Who's he? Well, he's the former assistant director of counterintelligence at the FBI, which is to say he's a colleague of Peter Strzok. So we know he's yet another of those FBI straight arrows. Undoubtedly, he's a Boy Scout, uh, as we used to say before Boy Scout uh, became synonymous with uh, sex predator, transphobic hater. And Frank Filiuzzi is already moving on from Trump to ensuring that Trump never happens again. He is the most vulnerable president in our history in terms of a compromise and potential exposure to those who want to help him dig out of his financial pit uh, in return for a price. And that's, I think, where the national security problem comes in. That price that they would ask for is that he makes decisions in their best interest, not in our best interest. So I suggest this, Stephanie, we've got to have a national discussion about how we vet a presidential candidate. We screwed this up, whether it's the media not digging deeply enough, whether it's a time to have a discussion about a bipartisan committee that demands tax returns, make that a requirement or exposes um, financial pictures for candidates. But we, we got this wrong and this can't happen again. A bipartisan committee that will approve whether this or that candidate can run for president. Uh-huh. We can't have a guy who's got international business dealings because you never know who he's in hock to. Instead, we need lifetime careerist politicians who fly their crackhead sons on Air Force Two to Beijing to do gazillion dollar deals with Chinese generals. Uh, the electorate has been trying to tell the guys who run this hideously, artificially constrained political system that they'd like a wee bit more of a choice than that offered by Democrats and mushy, neutered Republicans. And that's how we wound up with Trump. So now Frank Filiusi, on behalf of the Washington Perma State, 
And the Washington Uni Party is saying, OK, you've had your fun. It ain't going to happen again. We're going to have a bipartisan blue ribbon commission full of respectable bipartisan folks like Olympia Snow and Colin Powell and Cindy McCain and George Conway. And they'll tell you, OK, uh, we'll approve Jeb Bush and John Kasich and Susan Collins as GOP presidential candidates. But that's it. If on November the 3rd the polls are right and the Democrats win the presidency, the House and the Senate, things will get uh, real bad real fast. The social media crackdown will accelerate, cancel culture will accelerate, the erasure of American history will accelerate. The Washington Examiner reports on a new poll. 61% of Americans say the United States is, quote, on verge of civil war. 52% are already preparing for it. On the other hand, on the other hand, just across the Connecticut River from me lies the state of Vermont, and in the gas stations and general stores they have a free weekly alternative newspaper called Seven Days. You know the thing, as uh, Joe Biden would say. Uh, these these things are all the same, coast to coast. It's all gay, all trans, all vegan, all Ben and Jerry, all Black Lives Matter, even though there's only seven blacks in the whole of Vermont. But I always pick up a copy of Seven Days if I'm uh, gassing up on the green mountain side of the river because it's a very easy way to get up to speed uh, on the general vibe of all-white uh, varsity leftist slacktivism. Uh, And also, they did a very nice interview with me at a Trump rally in Vermont four years ago. Uh, Very good, actually. Very nice. Uh, The movie and music reviews are terribly written, uh, but that's true of the New York Times, too. Um, For the last... uh, for over a month now, there's been a big Black Lives Matter demo, with no black people at all, obviously, because it's Vermont. There's been a, a big Black Lives Matter demo occupying... Battery Park in Burlington for, as I said, over a month now. And they're an intimidating force and have made Burlington, the quintessential latte burg, uh, capital of Bernie Stan, a rather an intimidating place to go. And as Burlington is the only thing approximating to a city in Vermont, that means there's nowhere else to go. So Seven Days sent Chelsea Edgar to do a story on the uh, Battery Park protest, and she wrote it up uh, very exhaustively and comprehensively. And the protesters didn't like the way she characterised that protest, so they stole and destroyed all the free copies of Seven Days in in Burlington uh, street mailboxes, and they scrawled F Seven Days and Chelsea about to lose her job all over those boxes. The new issue mysteriously contains tonnes of letters supporting the mob. Uh, So many that the publisher, Paula Routley, felt obliged to add a note explaining that they'd received tons of emails taking the opposite position, supporting seven days and urging them to stand firm. Uh, Readers all over the state uh, sent these letters in, but they didn't wish to give their names because they don't want the thuggish intimidation that's happened to Chelsea Edgar and Paula Routley and other Seven Days staffers to fall on them. So Seven Days didn't publish those letters because it's a long-standing condition of publication that you give your name and town, and these Vermonters were too frightened to do so. Vermont. A land where people live in fear. Vermont. 
Vermont is where you go to strike attitudes far away from anywhere where you'd have to live with the consequences of those attitudes. Uh, now the consequence of those attitudes is in the heart of downtown hippy-dippy Burlington, and it's killing Burlington. And those unpublishable letters from scared Vermonters are very telling. LBJ said if he'd lost Cronkite, he'd lost America. Well, if you've lost seven days, you've lost Vermont. The letters page shows overwhelming support for BLM. The other side is as numerous, but too frightened to put their name and town to their correspondence, and so go unpublished. That's a very stark reminder uh, of how... Uh, the public numbers are not the full story. Uh, what does it mean for all those polls showing Joe Biden with a seven-point lead over Donald Trump? Well, we'll know soon enough. Tales for our time, songs of the week, and of course, the Mark Stein Show. Stein Online is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Members of the Mark Stein Club have access to the full catalog of Stein content, transcripts, and discounts, as well as the opportunity to ask Mark questions and engage with other club members in our comments section. Join the Mark Stein Club today by heading to www.steinonline.com. That's www.steinonline.com. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Well, it was a memorable presidential debate, and so I thought we'd have a poem on a debate-type theme. Uh, but unfortunately, it's very thin pickings when it comes to poems about debates. There's one I'm kind of partial to, very, very old, uh, but I think I'll leave that till next week. Uh, other than that one, I was coming up empty uh, for the kind of thing I had in mind until suddenly I remembered, hey, wait a minute, I wrote a poem about a presidential debate. Uh, NPR, National Public Radio, that's uh, for our non-American listeners, that's a bit like the uh, CBC, BBC, ABC, uh, not, not exactly, but kind of close to that. NPR, National Public Radio, they called me up eight years ago, just ahead of the first Obama-Romney debate. Um, NPR's awfully nice like that. They invite me on once a decade, uh, well, actually, it's uh, it's more like once every two decades. But in uh, but in this case, they wanted me to write a poem about the presidential debate. This was the one where Obama blew it, and Mitt was regarded in the post-debate polls as the runaway winner. In fact, by the biggest margin ever in presidential debates. My dear old pal Hugh Hewitt got hopelessly carried away, of course, hailing this as the most consequential presidential debate since Grover Cleveland versus Benjamin Harrison. And some of us tried to talk him down uh, off the ledge. Uh, you know, well, you know, it may be worth a couple of points in uh, Ohio, Hugh, but let's not go bananas over this. Uh, at any rate, uh, you may recall that Obama was listless and detached uh, and for some reason found himself unable even to look at Romney. And on top of all that, 
It was his 20th wedding anniversary. From National Public Radio, all things considered, October 4th, 2012, here's Melissa Block. And finally this hour, it's time for a literary take on one of our top stories today. Reporters step aside, spin doctors, drop those talking points. We've asked two writers to reflect on last night's debate in poetry, one from the right and one from the left. This is still politics, after all. First up, conservative commentator Mark Stein, author of the book After America, Get Ready for Armageddon. He was inspired by the fact that last night's debate coincided with the president's 20th wedding anniversary. So Barack asked Michelle, do you think it went well? By the candle, she'd never looked fairer. But her tongue was athirst and she silently cursed whoever'd signed off on Jim Lehrer. And she glanced down at her meringue, which sat forlornly on her plate. On hardball, his body language had been rated less than great. He said, you do still love me? She said, as years flew by, I've never looked at another man. And tonight, he said, neither did I. His wedding anniversary between Whoop and Beyonce, his prep time had been cursory. Now came his plaintive lay. Do not forsake me, media darlings, on this my wedding day. He said, toast to the bride, and Michelle gaily cried. A toast to the groom, I submit. And he said with Elan, let's toast the best man. And everyone else cried, to Mitt. And as champagne cork pops rang in their ears, he gazed at his love and he sighed. Does it really feel like 20 long years? And that's just tonight, she replied. Some debate poetry from Mark Stein, and the last word goes to Calvin Trillin, author of the upcoming Dogfight, the 2012 presidential campaign in verse. So the other fellow got a book out of it. Great. (laughs) That's uh, Melissa Block of National Public Radio with yours truly doing a bit of post-debate poetry on NPR, National Public Radio, just about exactly eight years ago, October 4th, 2012. Um... Not really poetry at all, really. Just uh, just versifying, get your end rhyme, and then write up to it. Uh, and in fact, I don't think Melissa Block noticed, uh, but I'm not sure I even read my own poem correctly in the middle bit there. So <laughs> never mind not being able to read Tennyson. I can't even read Stein. Kathy Shadle is the real poet round these parts, so maybe we should get Kathy. Uh, to do the 2020 debates. At any rate, assuming, that is, there are any more. At any rate, I promise we shall be back to real poems by real poets next week. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Patrick Sullivan, a Mark Stein Club member from Seattle, I don't know whether he's uh, holed up in the chop zone, Chazistan, uh, but from somewhere in that benighted metropolis, Patrick writes, I've always thought America's comparatively low voter turnout was a sign of political health. Um, I mentioned um, in passing uh, that uh, America had a very low voter turnout compared with um, most Western countries, compared uh, with uh, the UK and the Commonwealth and uh, continental Europe. And uh, Patrick says, uh, in the USA, a lot of people don't care who wins elections. They have more important things to do with their lives. 
But in the last couple of decades, that has changed. Now a lot more things get decided politically, including whether you can go to a movie or a live music concert or if your kids can go to school. Large segments of the American people are just beginning to realise how pernicious politicised people are. Joe Biden is hoping he can keep enough people in the dark to win this election, but if he wins, then what's he going to do? That's an interesting point, Patrick. As you say, we now have big government so big that um, in uh, the Australian state of Victoria, which admittedly is an outlier, a crazy outlier, uh, the state can now uh, rule that you can only leave the house for one hour a day for months on end, uh, which is new. In other words, government now determines absolutely everything. Uh, and as you say, Patrick, correctly, when government barely impinges on you, what's the urgency to vote? It doesn't much affect how you live your life. Uh, what's interesting about that, though, is it's not actually borne out by history. For example, in uh, 1900, when McKinley beat William Jennings Bryan, the turnout was 72%, even though... Whoever won was just some fellow far away who, you know, might get into a foreign shooting match every now and then, but who didn't impinge on your daily routine the way the feds now do in every aspect. The highest ever turnout in America was 1876, 81.8%. Quick, who was the 1876 American presidential election between? It was between Rutherford B. Hayes and, go on, go on, bonus points for the other guy, Samuel J. Tilden. Samuel J. Tilden. And yet, amazingly, that prompted the highest ever turnout, 81.8%. That era was actually the golden age of electoral participation, the late 19th century post-Civil War. Every election in the high 70s tickling 80%. In more recent history, nothing, nothing. World War, presidential assassination seems able to get that participation number much over 50, 55%. And yet I take Patrick's uh, general point. Many years ago, I was walking with a very old friend of mine who's a big theatre producer and a big theatre owner, American. Uh, but with uh, theatrical interests uh, all over the place. And he was over in London for the first night of one of his shows, and after the show, we walked with our respective consorts from the theatre to the first night party, and I took us through a shortcut via a dark, dingy alley, and he joked that in New York he wouldn't walk through an alley like this even in broad daylight. This was pre-Giuliani's clean-up of the town, of course. And this was in the run-up to um, the 1992 UK election, and the Tories were down in the polls. And so the Daily Mail uh, and whatnot were running daily stories on who was threatening to leave the country. Michael Caine, Michael Caine, was saying if Labour won, he might have to move. And uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber was saying if Labour won, he'd also have to leave the country. That threat, by the way, always results in a massive swing to Labour. I'm joking, Andrew. That's my traditional pre-election joke. But my producer friend found this absolutely bewildering. He was a Republican who was going to vote Republican, 
and supported the Republicans, but he could barely conceive of a situation in which uh, a mere election victory by the other side was such a dramatic recalibration of the entire state that you'd be driven to leave your homeland and find another country in which to live. As he put it, if the Democrats won, he and his accountant might have to tweak their tax planning a little, but that was it. As I said, that was 1992. Today... For the energised parts of the electorate, your party's loss, your guy's loss on November 3rd will be convulsive. As I said earlier, if Trump goes down a month hence, things are going to get real bad, real fast on all kinds of things, from Chinese hegemony to basic freedom of speech and freedom of movement. And yet, and yet, turnout is likely to be lower than the 56% who voted four years ago. This may be, as they say over at American Greatness and uh, similar websites, a Flight 93 election, but half of the passengers are still in full recline watching the Lego Smurf Movie 3. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. A week ago, our Song of the Week was a favourite of mine by Charles Aznavour, Al Kasher and Joel Hirshhorn, Dance in the Old Fashioned Way. And I'd thought about playing the Helen Reddy version of that song because uh, that was really the best known version of it in the United States. And I listened to it for the first time in many years and Helen's great, but I didn't really care for the arrangement. So I set it aside. And now I feel a bit bad about that because Helen Reddy died on Tuesday and it didn't get a lot of coverage because, of course, that was the big presidential debate night. Um, Helen Reddy made a lot of great records. As you know, we use her feminist anthem, I Am Woman, for our trans anthem. Uh, Her distant cousin is Dame Patsy Reddy the present Governor-General of New Zealand. It would be interesting to hear the Queen's Viceroy sing I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar, uh, on the uh, next throne speech uh, down under. On the very same day she died, her fellow 1970s variety show host, Mac Davis, also left us. Here's Helen Reddy singing a song composed by Mac Davis. All day long As long as I'm making music I know I can't do no one no wrong But who knows Maybe someday I'll come up with a song That makes people want to stop their fussing And I thought I'm just flying up to sing along Cause you know
Well, for what it's worth, I believe in music, I believe in love, but I'm not sure I believe in bold declarative anthems conflating the two and presenting the healing balm of music as the bringer of world peace, because I know there are billions of people around the planet who are left cold by Western music, even if they don't take it as far as ISIS does and behead classical uh, orchestra players on the beach. Uh, so I thought I'd explore other corners of the Mac Davis catalogue. Before he became a big singer in the 70s with songs like Baby, Baby, Don't Get Hooked on Me, people forget that Mac Davis was uh, just a hard-working songwriter. He started with Nancy Sinatra's company, Boots Enterprises, and they published all his songs. And when Mac decided to branch out on his own, Nancy, who can be very kind and generous in such matters, returned all his copyrights to him. Uh, that was uh, very generous. Uh, and Mac also benefited from the team around Nancy, uh, like her producer, Jimmy Bowen, and her guitarist, arranger, Billy Strange. Um, this is a song... Mac Davis wrote with Sammy Davis, no relation, in mind. Uh, Jimmy Bowen, who'd produced Sammy at Reprise Records as he produced all the Rat Pack big pop hits in the 60s, Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night, Dean Martin's Everybody Loves Somebody. Uh, Jimmy Bowen nevertheless thought this song, notwithstanding its content, might work better coming from a white guy. He arranged for Mac Davis to demo it at a recording session where everyone else in attendance was black, Jesse Jackson and the like. And then he took the song to Elvis. As the snow flies On a cold and gray Chicago morning A poor little baby child is born in the ghetto And his mama cries Cause if there's one thing she don't need Is another hungry mouth to feed in the ghetto People, don't you understand? Your child needs a helping hand. He'll grow to be an angry young man someday. I take a look at you and me. Are we too blind to see? Or do we simply turn our heads and look the other way? Well, the world turns. It's a rather interesting song for its time, and uh, for our time, because of its implication that the pathologies of black urban America are cyclical and socially rooted. And so as the song concludes, uh, even as its subject meets a bloody and premature end, the cycle begins again. As a crowd gathers round an angry young man face down in the street with a gun in his hand in the ghetto. And as her young man dies On a cold and gray Chicago morning Another little baby child is born In the ghetto And his mama cries Elvis and the recording 
in the ghetto. A ton of other people recorded it in the years after. Why don't you just arrange your chairs and come up close? Because I just want to lay a story on you. Including the guy Mac Davis originally had in mind for it, Sammy Davis Jr. I like Sam, but... He blew it. As the snow flies. Chicago morning, poor little baby child is born in the ghetto. And his mama cries, cause if there's one thing that she don't need is another hungry mouth to feed, especially if you're living in the ghetto. Davis wrote a lot of the better Elvis songs in the somewhat variable second act of the King's career. Don't Cry Daddy is a Mac Davis song, as is this one, which gave Elvis a posthumous number one hit in the UK, Canada, Australia, half a dozen other countries in the 21st century when it was remixed by a Dutchman, Junkie XL. a little more action. That's the way I feel after that debate on Tuesday. It's been a rough week in a miserable public discourse in a joyless lockdown world. Uh, So how about a lighter, a lighter song from Mac Davis on the burdens of celebrity? Back a few months ago, I was headlining a great big nightclub. And he put me up a couple of days early. I came in a couple of days early, and they put me up at what they call the Star Suite. Now, here I am, headliner in one of the biggest nightclubs in the country, and I wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning in this Star Suite, all by myself. Yeah, that's what I said, all. 
But I did what I've always done, man, to cheer myself up. I picked up my guitar, I sat down, I wrote me a little song. Now this is how it feels to be alone at the top of the hill and trying to figure out why. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're perfect in every way I can't wait to look in the mirror Cause I get better looking each day To know me is to love me I must be a hell of a man Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble But I'm doing the best that I can I used to have a girlfriend But I guess she just couldn't compete With all of these love-starved women Who keep clamoring at my feet Well, I probably could find me another But I guess they're all in all of me Who cares? I'd never get lonesome Cause I treasure my own company Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're perfect in every way Can't wait to look in the mirror Can't wait to look in the mirror Help me out now, come on I get better looking each day To know me is to what? To know me is to love me Must be a hell of a man I must be a hell of a man Oh Lord, it's hard Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're doing what? We're doing the best that we can Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're perfect in every way Words and music by Mac Davis. That will do it for today's show. Stick with us this weekend for more music and for Kathy Shadle's movie column, and we will be here to address any new developments re the president's COVID diagnosis. It is 2020, the first weekend of October, and the only October surprise this season would be if this were the last October surprise of what's likely to prove a very long month. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Reserved.